0: Hey, it's Seeking Plum. This is a continuation of the conversation from the previous episode, City Design that Considers Temperature and Hyperspeeds.
1: Hey, Seeking Plum. It's Alan with Centene Future. I really liked your episode on uh, public transportation and how cities are designed and how that influences their temperature. I'm curious as to the scale of the difference between a, a, a very crystallized city or a, or a very... Uh, liquid city um, by those definitions and you know to your point there there are so many factors involved in city planning that it makes me wonder to what degree you would really go to one of those extremes um, you know does it potentially jeopardize some of the other needs that that city has and uh, I'm sure there are a degree of complex trade-offs so um, yeah I just want to weigh in on, on that and ask for Uh, whether you knew what the difference was, perhaps, between the uh, cities in in those two extremes. Um, Yeah.
0: Hey, Alan, thanks for your calls. So I'm not exactly sure that I'm following exactly what your question is, but I'm going to attempt to touch on a couple of things that I think might beat around the bush or maybe hit the nail on the head. I'm not quite sure. So first, uh, a couple of things. A bit of a disclaimer, I'm not sure if in the the trail of information whether I may have misrepresented anything in either my language or in how I presented the ideas. And what I mean by that is when the study went from the original uh, scientists and their research to whoever wrote the article that I read and then how I perceived it and then presented some of those uh, ideas to you and other listeners. So there may have been something lost in a bit of translation there in the game of telephone. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think that there is any city, per se, that is built at one extreme or the other. I, I, t- I think typically they are blends of the two. They may be, leaning in one direction or the other so for instance let's look at Seattle and I can speak about Seattle because I've lived there they described Seattle in the article as being more of a liquid city um, because it has more of this you know I, I used the word chaotic now I can't remember if that was specifically in the article or not um, and why I came up with that word uh, I'd have to go back and and check these multiple sources but um, let's just pretend that maybe I came up with that word? I don't know. But Seattle does have some organic layout to the city, but it also does still have a lot of that grid uh, structure. But it was noticeably uh, cooler than I have experienced in other cities that have less uh, organic flow to some of the layout of the city design. That said, when I went past the article and dug into the study a little bit, they, they start talking about things like uh, urban heat island and things that are already known, like the fact that heat is absorbed during the daytime and expelled at nighttime. And typically they said that some of this information has been noted with respect to single street canyons so taking into consideration surfaces and textures, materials, and how that heat is absorbed and then released in those single street canyons has been information that is known. But these scientists wanted to expand that and get a better idea for the cities at large. So the scientists decided to study the impact of city, te- city texture on urban heat Islands, um, as they analyzed the hourly nighttime peaks for 20 U.S. uh, urban uh, areas. They covered a period of uh, multiple years, but they didn't want to have a a period that was large enough that would be affected by uh, climate change, but they didn't want it to be too small either. But moving away from some of that, what you're probably looking more for is how they determined uh, the, the pattern, the geometric patterns of the cities, and they did that by first determining where the weather stations were and then using a radial distribution function, which traditionally has been used to investigate atomic scale structures. I can't remember if I mentioned it, but this function then is used in a three-mile radius around the weather station. And typically this is done in residential areas. I think I'm going to leave all of the technical stuff there. The, the original article is linked in the show notes. And if you go into that article near the beginning, there is a mention of the study, which it is linked to. So you can find more information there and it's done through MIT. So I don't know if any of that actually answers any of your questions, Uh, so you may have to shoot me back another call if it doesn't.
1: The second thing I want to comment on was your question about how the Hyperloop system would deal with an emergency, and uh, whether in above ground or below ground would make things easier. I think, you know, ideally above, but if there is a system, a safety system that works well underground, then um, that works too, obviously. Uh, something that may be possible, I'm not entirely sure, is if there were the ability to close off particular sections, and then you know, at different intervals within that um, within that system, <clears throat> that there was uh, you know compressed air available, not right at the system, but you know, close enough such that you could quickly um, bring compressed air into the uh, vacuum within the tube that had been closed off uh, and perhaps with some people in it uh, in a quick fashion so as to uh, bring the atmospheric pressure back to what we would normally experience, uh, maybe something like that would work. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see.
0: So the compressed air implementation uh, for the Hyperloop is almost exactly what I had envisioned, but I did think that maybe there were a couple of complications or at the very least some complexities to, to the issue. If they choose to go this route, I think it's going to be very expensive to set this up mile after mile after mile. It has to be maintained and safety checked on a regular basis as well. Parenthetically, so do the doors that would uh, close off this portion of the tunnel at either end. Another concern I had is that when you blow in air into a space, it's difficult to gauge exactly what kind of pressure you need to do that at. Specifically when it needs to be quick enough to provide the air that we need, but not so quickly that it becomes harmful to us. And the other tricky aspect is, is if there is damage of any kind, say a big gaping hole in, in the, the train or whatever we want to call this, we don't know how big or how small that hole is. So to blow air into this closed off portion of the tunnel, you don't know exactly how much pressure is required. To some extent, because we know the given space that's there, we are going to have a top range and a bottom range, but there is going to be, you know, some variables there. In some ways, now that I think about it, if someone were to set off a bomb, even if it was inside of the hyperloop or train or whatever, and it went off, it has limited oxygen right because it's whatever's inside on the outside the but inside the tunnel it's a vacuum so even once there's a hole made then there's then then the oxygen escapes and they're now dealing with a vacuum which means there's no more flame but as soon as as soon as the tunnel is closed on either end and the oxygen rushes in I mean, we hope that there is a long enough gap that 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 oxygen rushing in is to the benefit of the survivors and does not facilitate any further damage. I definitely think that they can find solutions, whether above ground or below ground. Uh, When I was thinking about this, I just thought that there were fewer obstacles and fewer dilemmas if it was done above ground, just as you said, you know? I think that the, the way to close off either ends of the tunnel um, would be easier, less problematic, and as well, the idea of oxygen. I'm sure that there are far more knowledgeable and skilled people working on this than me. How's this for interesting? Today, a friend recommended to me a podcast entitled Intelligence Squared, and the most recent episode is called Disruption Ahead, Will Future Transport Systems Benefit Society or Drive It Apart? Yeah, after listening to it and thinking about some of these topics for the last few days, I'm beginning to think that the Hyperloop is probably a bit further off into our future than maybe Elon Musk would like us to think. Or than he would like to think. But then again, maybe I'm the one that's going to be surprised that money can make things happen faster than I have seen in the past. Who knows?
1: The last thing I wanted to comment on was the rooting problem for the loop systems within cities. Uh, the first part of that is that uh, there are a lot of parkades right now who that we might be able to reclaim uh, in terms of um, stations, right? Uh, because those already exist and uh, they're arguably close enough already to, to people's work. Um, and the next thing is, and many, many of which already go a bit underground, and uh, the next piece is that there are a lot of artificial intelligence systems uh, right now that can... Uh, create new solutions uh, by giving a bunch of constraints and uh, there is one uh, that provides a neat visual it's called dreamcatcher by a company called autodesk autodesk is the company that creates autocad and the examples they show anyways are of physical items that seem very organic uh, but those uh, satisfy some some design constraints in terms of strength uh, but you know organically they've been reached by by ai there's something that maybe we can do in that way Uh, so i'd encourage you to look to that uh, for a visual
0: Dreamcatcher and software similar to it seems very powerful with a lot of potential. I will be interested to see where it goes and what can be done with it. The idea of incorporating parkades into the loop as pod stations is an interesting one, and I'm not exactly sure how that would work. It's not exactly something I had... Uh, envisioned based on the the short animation that Elon Musk had shared and the tweets that he put out, but that's not to say that it couldn't work. Uh, it just wasn't it wasn't where my brain had gone. So uh, it is some th- it it opens up other possibilities as well as other complexities, other things to plan for. Yeah, it's It's going to be interesting. There's still, I think, plenty of time, and so there's a lot of room for things to change. Incidentally, if you missed the animation or the tweets put out by Elon Musk, they can be found in the article shared in the show notes that is entitled, Elon Musk is making a big change to his Hyperloop and Boring Company plans. If you're not familiar with the show notes or you're new to them, they can be found in one of two ways. I usually place a link in the episode description, or you can go to medium.com forward slash at symbol seeking plum. Just as a disclaimer, I don't typically make show notes for every episode, particularly if there are no articles, books, links, references, etc. to share with you. So if you know there was an episode, but you can't find the show notes, it's okay. You're not missing anything. If you have any questions, feel free to give me a call or leave me a message on another platform, Twitter, Medium, Instagram. As always, thank you for your calls, Alan, and for the conversation.